0: Well, good morning. I'm Taylor, and so I'm a pastor here, and we're just so glad to have you as part of this family. Welcome, welcome. I uh, I'm teaching a, a class, a midweek class right now. It's just a it's a summer class, seven weeks, and so that means two lessons a week typically. And I, I feel I feel sort of uh, like I'm doing a good job if I can produce two lessons a week. And Nathaniel's talking about a church in Syria that's they're having fifteen services a week, and it's just man. I mean, I think Luther and Calvin would typically preach about ten about ten sermons a week, so. That'll put you in your place and give you some perspective, man. Praise God for what he's doing there and here and for our connection to them through Christ. That's really what we're talking about today is our connection in Christ to one another through what he's done and how that manifests itself in the meal. Um, so yeah, if you haven't already turned there, 1 Corinthians 11, we're walking through the book pretty slowly, uh, I think six months total. We're in, we started in 1-1 and now we're in 1 Corinthians 11-17 uh, and then next week we'll be in 12, which is about the gifts. So if you know... Just a teeny bit about 1 Corinthians, you probably know 1 Corinthians 12 is about the gifts and then 13 is about love. So we're getting into some pretty intense stuff. Um, and yeah, so last week, a little bit of context up, for, oh, before I before I jump in, one thing, let me get this going, I want to make sure and finish on time, um, one thing is, oh, what Nathaniel said, aside from the two dookies that he, <laughs> he's just gonna say that one more time and move that out of the way. yeah, who knows if that was recorded, but this is. Um so uh we yeah, we do pray here. It was first Wednesday prayer. We're we're trying out we're trying out first Sunday prayer, moving it to Sunday night for a variety of reasons. So I just wanna reiterate we've made that a change. Uh it's at five here today, so Body of Christ, I would enjoin you, please come. It's one of the most important things we do is we cry out to God together for this body and for our family together on mission here where he's placed us in this part of town. Um, so please come and pray with us. A few changes there. We're gonna try out no meal. We're just, gonna, we're just gonna come in five and pray. There is childcare. So if you have kids, come have them pray with us. If you want to have them cared for, that's great too. We have a place for that. And then afterwards, as a parish, or just, hey, it's going to be all of us, so grab some folks and go out to a meal with folks that you don't see as much in this family. Um, Or, like, we're inviting, our house is open, we're inviting anyone, our parish certainly, but we have a pool, uh, I have a grill, and it's going to be fired up, so if you want to come to our place and just bring your stuff, bring a meat, bring a side, come join us. We are a family. We'd love to have you. So, that's that. Um. Paul started, last week I preached uh, the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11, head coverings, doesn't sound like a scintillating topic, Uh, it was pretty interesting, it it was an encouraging sermon for a lot of us, I think, and just to see how Paul, rather than being repressive, which it sounds like is actually someone who lifts women up because of what Christ has done, it was an extremely, in a sense, egalitarian, uplifting, liberating word from the Lord, and that's what God does. Sometimes we think his word's oppressive, but we forget that his word is manifest perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. So, of course, he is for us to the nth degree. He is for us. He is for liberation, and he's given himself for us to to prove that. So, that was last week, and that's where Paul starts his section that goes through chapter 14 on the body of Christ getting together to worship, corporate worship, and then sort of, he's sort of saying, look, you're doing this, but you're, you're messing up here. You're not staying consistent with what Christ has done for you here, so I want you to live more into that, and that's what he's still talking about and will be for the next few sermons. Um, this week is on communion. When they come together and take the Lord's Supper together, they're doing some egregious things. So he talks about that. Let me just read this from a, um, from a book by Joseph Lelieveld called The Great Soul. People will often say that Gandhi and Jesus had a lot in common. While I'm sure some similarities exist, I'm sure we've heard them compared, you know. I think such a view betrays a superficial understanding of both men. Take one example, their diverging attitudes about food. Gandhi appeared to have a rather strained and fickle relationship with food. He held the view that one's taste for food was inextricably linked with one's sexual appetite. And both were inherently vulgar, debased, impure, desires to be squelched. Now this is Gandhi. This is what he believed. In his mind, the disciplined man lives in a state of perpetual, quote, partial fasting, relying only on scant portions in his, this is Gandhi, grim fight against the inherited and acquired habit of eating for pleasure. By contrast, you have the Son of Man who came, we're told, in Luke 7 and elsewhere, eating and drinking. He was accused of being a winebibber, a glutton, a drunkard. He loved hanging out with sinners, notorious sinners. Uh, he loved to feast at table with people. That's where he did so much of his ministry. And what we get to peer into here and focus on for the next 30 minutes together is, amazingly, he takes one thing a table, and says, it's at the table where you eat and drink that you can, it's basically a a total expression or a good expression of what I've called you to. Come to table, come feast with me, come feast on me. So we get to look at that together and we get to kind of peer into how the Corinthian church was doing it. I want to just say this, what I'm proposing this morning is that the Lord's Supper, according to Paul's word here, is more than a meal. It's more than a meal. It's a radical revolution that changed, literally changed everything, okay? So that's my pro- proposition this morning. Um, three points about the meal. What they thought it was, what it actually is, and why it matters, okay? What they thought it was, why it is, what it, what it is, excuse me, and why it matters. Let's look first at what they thought it was, verses 17 through 22, and then 27 through 34. Um, there were just abuses going on in the Corinthian gathering as they would gather to worship the Lord, Um, one of the abuses, verse 18 and 20, he says, each goes ahead with his own meal. They were cliques, for lack of a better word. They were cliques, okay? They were sticking together. Uh, We do some cultural digging. What we realize is the rich would stay. It was a sort of socioeconomic stratification going on. Different people coming together as the church, as happens, different people getting saved, and the rich were kind of hanging out with the rich. And they were enjoying rich food and drink, and they were sort of leaving the poor aside. So there were cliques, um, and that's kind of more easily understood if you realize too in the cultural setting of the day that when Paul was writing this in you know, early 60s, let's say um, AD, a generation after Christ ascended, when he was writing this, people weren't worshiping in, well, this isn't a beautiful church building, it's a building, it's a school, but they weren't worshiping in tall, steepled church buildings. They were worshiping in homes and what kind of home would they be in? A, a patron, um, a, a rich person that had, that had uh, believed on Christ and was a Christian, a lot of times they'd be meeting in, larger homes um, throughout the Roman world. And so in, in this case, case in Corinth, and what would happen is the, uh, there was room typically in that kind of home for, kind of like we have about 10 people at a table, but they would sit, they would lie down on the floor and kind of eat like this on their sides and their feet would be out away from the table. And those typical rooms had about 10 places or so, place for about 10 people. Um, and they would eat a feast and then tack on the Lord's Supper but then there was standing, kind of standing room only, sort of if you have a house and you have room at a table for a certain amount, but then you have room for more people, but they, not necessarily to sit at a table and eat for about 30 or 40 more typically, but it was sort of groundlings, kind of standing room only, mosh pit type stuff. And they would kind of get the scraps typically. And so there's this huge division. Um, there's, they're also getting drunk. We do grape juice because, uh, for a variety of reasons, mainly because we're in a school. So we would have grape juice available for those that didn't want to drink wine. We would also have wine if we were not in a school because um, wine is what is called for. Um, but it wasn't grape juice. It was wine, and people were getting drunk. Um, also, they were coming hungry, and they were just gorging themselves. And um, and so that's what they – that's some of their abuses. Um, now, why were they doing these things? How, what, what were they misunderstanding? Okay. Well, one, they were treating it sort of like you just treat a normal meal to fill up. And to, and to slake your thirst, um, in other words, they were, they were treating it as common, holy means set apart, distinct, separate, and the lord 's supper is not to fill our uh, our bellies or to slake our thirst it 's something that, as Paul said, reminds us of what is central and what is really a radical revolution at the heart of of what is of existence that we 'll talk about okay, but th- so they weren 't treating it like that, they were treating it as common, and they were coming together just to just to treat it like any other meal, and they were getting drunk beside some of them. They were also, like I, like I touched on a minute ago, they were doing it selfishly. I think this is one of the more salient points. Um, they were doing it to satisfy themselves or to stay in their group that was a lot like them. And we as humans, as fallen humans, have the tendency, because of our insecurity and selfishness, to just be with people that are like us, okay, for a variety of reasons. Um, and Paul is saying that's the exact opposite of what Christ has called us to. He laid his life down to gather a people to himself that are all so very different, different socioeconomic strata, different races, um, any difference you can think of, difference, but united in one thing, the fact that they are identified in Christ by faith in what, who he is and what he has come to do for us. And so it's, in a sense, Christ is the great leveler. We talked about that some last week. In a sense, there are no distinctions um, when we come in Christ, we are his body. And so these distinctions between you're like me or you're rich and you're poor, so you stay over here, he's saying that's, that is the antithesis of what the meal actually is supposed to be telling us. And he gets into that more next chapter, doesn't he? Well, this will be next week. The sermon is on the body, how we are Christ's body and how just like a body has different parts, an arm, a finger, a leg, a knee, an elbow, and they do different things. So Christ is our head. And by faith, he makes us his body. He attaches us to himself and will never be severed from us. And so we are connected in him. And so we ought to, I mean, when the hand gets hurt, um, or let's say when the foot gets hurt, the hand is concerned because he's attached. the hand is attached to the foot and the, and the hand's gonna do everything he can to, to protect the foot and to, and to um, nurture the foot and to, and to cause the foot to be well. And so, because we're connected by the head as one body. So he's saying, that's the antithesis. You're, you're showing in the way you're practicing communion that um, you don't understand what this meal's about. Okay, Um, verse 27, if you look at actually verses 27, 28, and 29, they're pretty terrifying. There's judgment, right? There's judgment toward the end of this passage here. Really sobering. Whoever, uh, verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Wow. Wow. so one of the first things I, let's, let's just dig into that for a second. One of the first things I, I see when I, uh, when I read this is, does that mean if I'm unworthy in myself, in what I do and in who I am and the sins that I commit, that I can't approach the table? No, that's not what Paul says here, is it? Look at the words. He says, whoever approaches not unworthy in an unworthy manner, okay? In fact, if you think that you, are worthy in and of yourself, the way that you act, the things that you do or don't do, the way that you think and speak, if you think you can approach God in and of yourself, it shows that you are actually unworthy. But if you realize you're an unworthy sinner who comes to the table falling on the grace of Christ that he provides through his cross, that's the only way that you, are act- you show yourself actually suited to approach his table. So he's not talking about that. Thinking I'm a good person and I can approach on my own record actually shows that I'm unworthy. But he's talking about approaching in an unworthy manner. Another way I think that um, I can, so a way that I can approach in an unworthy manner, okay? And we talk about this some when I fence the table after the sermon every week before we take communion, is I, if I'm harboring unforgiveness in my heart, I mean, what does the table, what does the Lord's Supper say to us? A bunch of stuff, that we're a body, but also that he gave himself for us, that we're unworthy, but he makes us worthy through his sacrifice, that he forgives us of all of our sins without condition, so long as we approach him by faith. Um, And then if I'm, if I'm holding unforgiveness in my heart towards someone else, that's showing that I really, I'm not, I'm not thinking on what this is about. I'm not receiving it for myself or I'm taking it for myself and not extending it to others. And that kind of hypocrisy, Paul says, man, examine yourself, examine yourself before you come to the table. Okay. Extend that forgiveness that's been extended to you to others. And I have a story of a, someone in our congregation that did that this week and makes you wanna weep. I mean, it's just amazing. It's so powerful and it's changing people around them. So um, I see that happening in this body. So this is, this is me recounting what the Corinthians are doing and, and sharing it by way of instruction for us. A lot of this has encouraged me. We're not a perfect people. We're sinners saved by grace through faith. But man, I'm seeing Christ playing out in you and I'm really, I'm, I'm so thankful to be part of this body. Um, you encourage me, but... Also, if you're holding on to unforgiveness, but also if you're holding on to a pet sin, something that, was it Augustine who said, um, um, Lord, give me purity, but not yet. He had a sex problem, um, and uh, he wanted to do some things uh, first before he got right with the Lord. So forgive me, Lord, but hang on. Make me pure, but not quite yet. Let me go. Let me take care of some stuff first. We, you know, if, you, if that's the sort of thing, whether whatever, if it's a, a lust issue or if it's greed or if it's could go down the list. Gossip, pride, anger, unforgiveness. Um, let me hold on to this one thing, this pet sin. Paul's saying, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Give that to the Lord. Repent. Cast yourself before him. Um, now, as I say all this, I want to sort of correct myself and correct you if you're starting to say, okay, it's, it's a totally about internal examination approaching the table. Well, I tend toward that way. I'm a, I live in my head and I tend toward introspection and navel gazing. Actually though, that's, no, he talks about having their eyes fixed on them and being self-focused and that's not the answer. What are we told throughout the scriptures, especially like in Hebrews 11? Okay, fix your eyes. And then Hebrews twelve, Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Christ. Lift your eyes and fix them on the author, what? And the perfecter of your salvation, everything that he's done. Get outside of, lift your eyes to him. See him crucified on the cross, loving you. That's his expression of love for you, undying through his death and resurrection, love for you. So get your eyes on Christ. You know, in the Old Testament, um, the sacrificial system was, it was central. All the law was built around the system of sacrifices. When when the law was broken, which it was invariably, people would come and offer something without blemish, to take their place so that they could go on having a relationship with God. Um, it wasn't the confidence, the bravado, the swagger, on the contrary, it wasn't the confidence that the, the suppliant, the one that was offering the sacrifice and approaching God in his tabernacle or temple, it wasn't the, even the, the amount of faith that he had in bringing that sacrifice that, that mattered in the end. What was it? It wasn't the quality of his faith, it was the quality of the sacrifice. If the sacrifice was pure, without blemish, according to the very word of God, it was an adequate substitute for that sinner. What matters for us is that Christ is the completely perfect, adequate, worthy substitute for us. He took our place. And so casting yourself on him and saying, I believe, you took my place. You are my perfect representative. You got my shame and you gave me your righteousness and your purity, and your perfection on that cross. There was that great exchange that happened, and I believe um, that, is, that is what matters. Um, but all that being said, again, sort of away from the introspection, commentators tend to think, from the ones I've read, that the phrase, rather than just referring to me and God, which is Americans, we're very individualistic, we tend to think me and God, and there is me and God. There's definitely, he says, examine yourself, person, right? But he's talking to the whole body, the whole church in Corinth, right? Um, that Christ has made a body through differences included through his sacrifice, through his own person. Um, it's prob- the phrase is probably referring to the incompatibility, I'm quoting here, of the Corinthians' div- divisive arrogance as compared to the sacrificial, others-oriented nature of Jesus' death. So when we're thinking just about us, and when we, let's say when we gather in parish, our parish families and have a meal together and share life together and share life as a congregation together to a watching world, and interact with one another when we're really focused on people that are just like us, and, and building barriers, and not reaching out in love to those that may even threaten us, to those that are lost and that might and might cause some mess in our lives, um, and not giving ourselves like Christ did. We're just not getting. We're showing that we don't get. We haven't really considered, and we have to reconsider constantly, don't we? I can't, every day I don't get it, so I have to be reminded myself as I spend time with the Lord and by you. The body of Christ that's given to me. Um, I have to be in fellowship with you. I have to be in the Lord's word, in prayer, just constantly reminded of of the fact that man, my life's out of alignment with Christ giving up His rights and laying His life down to gather a people to Himself. So Paul's saying you're just show, you're betraying your ignorance of of what the table's all about when you when you uh, are so focused on yourself and on cliques that are just like you. So think about parish in that way. Think about. Um, like Nathaniel said, a family on mission, reaching out to those that are unlike us, that are lost, that are hurting, that, man, this is my biggest thing, that are gonna cause me an inconvenience. How much did Christ inconvenience himself for us? To an infinite degree. And so the table is just a constant reminder of how we are to be as a people. May that permeate our lives. And And again, I've seen that increasingly with you and it just makes me so encouraged and glad. So thank you for that. The consequences, Paul says, lastly in this first point, Longest point, the consequences, verses 27 through 30. And here in verse 30, he says, some of you are getting sick because you're taking you're taking the table just in a cavalier, thoughtless, selfish, unforgiving, holding on to pet sins, whatever it is, manner. So some of them are literally getting physically ill and, uh, and some are actually dying. One interpreter interprets this, this is the reason many of you are spiritually asleep. So, because literally in the Greek it says falling asleep. But that's a pretty... That's a well-accepted phrase for uh, dying. It's a euphemism for dying. So these are believers that are falling asleep and going to be with the Lord, but they are being judged by God, disciplined by him. The body's being disciplined because it's not disciplining itself. Paul says later, if you discipline yourself and, and speak truth and love to one another and not just say, how you doing? Great. Good job. Thanks. That's easy. But as a body really holding each other accountable to what Christ has done for us and what he's called us to be getting in each other's business, like Nathaniel said, in a, in a family, healthy, good, Christ-loving, Christ-exalting, not pointing fingers, but we're in this together, we're on mission together way, um, if, then Christ, God won't have to discipline us if we're disciplining one another through the love of Christ, in the love of Christ, you see? So some are getting sick, some are even dying. Um, and that's one of the things, before I move to point two, what it is, um, what I thought it was, and what it is. That's one of the reasons we believe um, in the table as not just, okay, I use the word just, not just a remembrance, not just a memorial. It is remembering what Christ has done, but we believe that Christ is spiritually present by the power of his spirit through faith, not magical, among us when we celebrate the table together, when we gather here to worship. As Paul said last week, we think he meant uh, that strange comment about the Angels, angels. Heavenly beings are here witnessing what's going on here. The Holy Spirit is present in a real and powerful and distinct way when we gather to worship God. Christ, God sits enthroned, Psalm 22, three, on the praises of his people. There's a, he especially loves it when his people come together where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. When we come to pray, when we come to praise, when we come to preach and receive the word and to feed on him together, he is here in a, in a way for salvation, but also for judgment a serious thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Um, may he sanctify us. May he convict us. May he be exalted. May he empower us to be on mission. So that's that. Um, what it is, this to me is the most exciting point, and then we'll get to just some brief application at the end. Um, what it is, verses 23 through 26, what is this, this meal? Um, he repeats the words of institution that, that, Jesus, that Jesus says. Um, This is is my body, this is my blood of the new covenant. Implying what? There's an old covenant. The old Mosaic covenant was constantly broken by Israel. The, The covenant given by God at Sinai to Israel, to his people, it was constantly broken. But this one, this new covenant, what? It's kept by Christ, who is the Israel of God, the true son of God. It's kept. This covenant is kept by Christ for you. And you enter into that by faith. Wow, that kind of security, that kind of completion gives a freedom that they didn't know. It means that whereas before the covenant was written on stone, the prophets tell us there's gonna be a day, and now is through Christ, where that covenant, God's very word, is gonna be written on hearts of flesh. So the Holy Spirit, when we believe on Christ, comes and lives, takes up residence inside of you, and you become a little Christ, you become part, truly, truly, spiritually, really part of His body, connected to Him by faith through His Holy Spirit, and one day that faith—I don't want to—I don't want to be—I uh, don't want to give too much credit to us when I say this—but one day there's a sense in which that faith and the activity of His body on Earth will draw Him back for good when He comes and He brings heaven down to stay with us as His kingdom goes forward. Okay, so that's the new covenant. Um, the old, old covenant was in sheep's blood. The new covenant is what? In my blood. All the sheep pointed to him. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, every Jew would have understood. He's taking all the Old Testament sacrificial cultists, the system, and saying, boom, it's in one guy. It's all for him. It all converges on this point, this man. Um, and like I said, we celebrate with juice, but it was, it was bread and wine. It's bread and wine that we're supposed to. So imagine wine as you're you're drinking the juice because juice is just sweet. But wine is sweet, but it's also what? Bitter. It's also bitter. Um, You don't celebrate with grape juice. You celebrate with wine, but how how does it made? It's made through being crushed. Bitter for him. He was crushed. Sweet for you. Sweet for you because of what he went through. But also bitter for us is we remember constantly, once a week minimum, but daily as we constantly go back to the cross. Never leave the cross. Never, He's not crucified anymore, thank God. That was finished. That's done. It's finished. Last word's on the cross and he's alive. But to forget about it, Paul says, never. May it never be. Even in the new heavens and new earth, he'll have the ma- nail marks in his hands and feet to remind us this is how the universe hangs together. This is why we are here, because of what he did for us. So in that sense, as we remember, bitter for us. But what? Sweet for him. Because what? What does Hebrews 12, 2 says? It says, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising its shame. Um, what a powerful verse. J.B. Phillips translation, he says, for he himself endured a cross and thought nothing of its shame because of the joy he knew would follow his suffering. In an honor-shame culture where he was crucified, he was stripped down naked. You see a loincloth on crucifixes or in the movies, that's just for modesty's sake. There was no loincloth. His flesh was just hanging off of him. You could see his bones. He was dying of thirst, pulling himself up on the spikes completely naked. God chose this. God chose this. So he could take our place, and so in himself he could make a way for us to be with him. He chose this, and he used our evil and our rejection of him to be rejected and to bring us in. (laughs) And it says that he was so thrilled about what he was looking to, the joy that was set before him, okay, that he almost didn't even, as excruciating as it was, he passed over that shame. He despised it is is what a lot of translations say. I think of um, a good way to maybe apprehend this, not comprehend it, is in Genesis when Jacob He's crazy about this girl, Rachel. And so he works seven years for her, for her, uh, her father. He works seven years for Laban um, so that he can marry Rachel. And it's, what does it say about that? What's the commentary on his work? It says, they seem to him as almost no time at all, just a few days. You ever, you ever felt that way? Usually it's love that gets us to that place but where it just seems like the time just flies by. We've all felt that way about something in the past where you're looking so forward, it might be a vacation and you're, you're willing to, or a bonus and like you're willing to put your head down and just blow through whatever's hard. It is hard, but it just seemed like a few days, it was no thing. And I don't wanna minimize the cross because it was the most excruciating hellish thing that has ever been done or ever will be done. But the scripture itself tells us he was so, so eager because of the joy set before him that he endured the cross despising a shame. And here's my question, what was that joy? Getting you. Getting you. Getting a people for himself. Or he could take all the boundaries that separate us from each other and us from God and just smash them to bits and draw us in. Doesn't matter what your past is, doesn't matter what you've done. In Christ you're accepted. In Christ you are welcome. In Christ you are worthy. And he could not wait to do it. And so that just drove him. It drove him. But I want to say this. This is the main pivot of the sermon. So if I've kind of lost you, pull you back in. I just want to plonk down on this for a few minutes. This blew my mind and heart this week. Holy Spirit, come and do your thing. Exalt Christ now. Get this. And then we move on to some application. And then we're done, okay? It's not just a meal. But what, is the, what did the sermon title say? It's not just a meal. It's the most radical revolution of all time. It's the most radical revolution of all time. Um, again, when we when we think about the faith, when we think about salvation, when we think about walk with God, um, there's a lot of focus on personal devotion. We're very individualistic as Christians, and all that's necessary and good. It ought to happen, but it's not just that. It's not just me and God. He died for a, to make a people for Himself, but also get this, and this is one of the things the meal speaks to, and that I saw this week. I think it's it's not just about me and God. It's not just speaking to the individual. It is that speaking to you and to you and to you. He loves you. He died for you. But it's also speaking about something that has literally cosmic consequences. So let's look at that briefly. And I took you back to Genesis last week and I love especially the first three chapters of of Genesis. So you're going to be, we're going back there again and um, just get used to it because I love them. So the first three, just a little side note. I'll, I teach a class on this and we'll roll it out at some point. But the first three chapters of the Bible give a huge payload. They are uh, the acorn, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, are the acorn out of which the whole oak of God's salvation history, the history of everything until Revelation 22 unfolds. That, that, that oak tree grows out of that acorn of the first three chapters. And we see some of that here. Um, if you look back into the garden, God made all things, we talked about this last week, and then at the, end of, the in, in, end of his beautiful and good creation, unstained by sin, he made man and woman in his image alone, only man and woman. He gave them regency, reign over creation and said, rule in my image as my bears, and spread my image, have kids, spread my image out over the world and rule and reign, uh, imaging me, representing me, building my kingdom, connecting heaven and earth, Okay. That's what we were made for, to know God, to make him known, to spread his image throughout the whole earth. He said, just have at it. Anything you want to do, do it. All creation is yours. Just one thing you can't do. Don't eat from this one tree. A lot of us think of that. We'll get to that more maybe in January when we hopefully start down a slow trod through the first chapters of Genesis. But in brief, I've often thought of that, is that seems arbitrary. Like, why would God do that? It seems like a tease. It seems wrong. Like, he's just setting them up for failure. One of the things I think that's happening is paradise and being able to do whatever we want without being connected to God through obeying him as our good father isn't paradise. We're made to obey God. It's connection to him and obedience and faith to him and trust to him that creates, that's what we're made for, that creates a perfect place, a perfect world for us. So without that, things would not have been perfect. And so Adam and Eve chose to disobey and there's a scene in Genesis three where that happens. And it says, Genesis 3, 6 says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, so this is in contradiction to God's word and the serpent has enticed her, right? He's made her think that God is holding out on her, which is what all sin is. God, he's holding out on me, there's something better he don't want me to get to. That's what all sin is, okay? And she saw it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise. She what? Took of its fruit and ate. And then she gave some to her husband and he ate and he was with her and he was silent the whole time. So the, the, the brunt of the responsibility for our fall falls on Adam. But that's beside the point. She took and she ate. What's my point? My fav- one of my favorite Old Testament commentators, Derek Kidner, he, makes, he, ma- he's, he says this. He says, in the Lord's Supper, you don't see it here, but you see it in Matthew 26, verse 26. Matthew 26, 26. Jesus says, this is my body. Take and eat. Jesus, in the Lord's Supper, as the second human, the second Adam, Adam in Hebrew means man, as the second human, okay? Adam was the first, and he plunged, he and Eve plunged through their disobedience, all creation into cosmic ruin. Because everything that they were given charge of fell as they fell, okay? And so man and creation were separated from God after Adam, represented in him. And then Christ comes along as the second Adam, unstained by sin okay, obeying the Father from the heart as we were made to be. And he gets to the eve of his crucifixion, the whole reason that he came, to take our place in the judgment we deserve, okay, and to give us his perfect righteousness and obedience. And what does he say in this commemoratory meal that he says repeat over and over and over again? He says, this is my body, take it and eat it. And in those two verbs, he is redeeming, He's starting the process of renewal of all creation that Adam and Eve plunged through their disobedience uh, into ruin, okay? And he is redeeming those words, take and eat. It's the same in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same two verbs as as, as, uh, Jesus says at the Lord's Supper, take and eat, okay? She took and she ate the fruit. And he says, take and eat my body and my blood. So there are a bunch of parallels. One of them is they took the fruit and they plunged creation into ruin, Um but jesus says take the fruit of my blood and again how does how does wine become wine the grape is crushed he's saying i'm going for this to happen i'm going to have to absorb all of the ruin of creation and all the disobedience that's enfolded into it that that caused it into myself on that cross i'm going to be broken so that creation can be restored and so that anyone who comes to me by faith can be made whole. And so that's what he does. Um, they took, Adam and Eve took an eight from the tree in disobedience. Jesus tells us to take an eat of his death on the tree, the cross. Um, in direct disobedience to God's word, Eve took an eight. In direct obedience to God's word, friends, we take an eat, pondering all that entails that God's very word enfleshed is what we're feeding on, is what took our place in death, in perfect obedience, as opposed to Adam and Eve, in perfect obedience to his father in the matter about the tree. Um, And so as the second Adam, what does Christ do? He dies and he buries the first order, the old order. And so when he rises, he rises to a completely new type of humanity, unstained by sin. And when you trust in him, You are represented in him. You are encased in him. Uh, He is your, you are identified in him. There are only two races in the world, friends. I've said this before. Those that are in the first Adam, born into that representation, rebelling against God, focused on self, focused on division, focused on me, getting all the gusto for me, me, me. And those that are represented in the second Adam by faith in Christ. There are only two, two types of humanity. That's it. Forget about, skin color forget about language forget about custom all those things are beautiful in their own way also divisive Christ says he makes it very clear and simple there's the old Adam the first Adam and there's the new Adam the second Adam the second man and anyone can be represented in him if they come by faith um because they took an eight Adam and Eve covered their nakedness but they couldn't cover their shame but Christ was stripped naked uh And he bore our shame and he covered us with his righteousness. Um, And finally, in being lifted up on the cross, he lifted our shame and sin off us. Remember at the beginning, if you were here of the gathering uh, during the call to worship, and I read from Psalm 3 and I said, God says that he is the lifter of our heads in Christ, in Christ alone, he is. Um, So lastly and briefly, how to take communion and why it matters. Just a few things that Paul says. I won't mention them all. Reflectively, we've talked about that, on what Christ has done for us. Um, Not cavalierly, reflectively, even preparing ahead of time. Think about your Saturday nights. Um, Am I talking about this Lord's table on Sunday morning? Yes. Am I also talking, though, about how we interact with one another throughout the week in sharing our potluck meals as we gather together in our relationships with each other? Yes, that comes out of this meal, doesn't it? But as we come together, um, think about what you're doing. Treat even Saturday night differently. Um, sometimes I'm, I, I don't always spend my, I try, to, you know, I have extra motivation to sort of treat it differently and prepare, but I don't always do that well. Um, and it doesn't mean, we're not being legalistic here that you have to, but don't just treat it like any other time. This is a special time to be reminded and to remind one another reflectively on what he's done. Do it in, re, in reflection, but also in repentance, on what we have done, or left undone that we ought to have done, sins of commission. On what we've done that we ought not to have. But also, do you ever think about this? Sins of omission. Things that you ought to have done that you know you ought to have done by conscience or God's word, but that you simply have neglected to do. Um, and repenting and confessing before God. This is a, the table's a chance to do that. Um, So that's reverently, regularly, what does he say? He says, do this in remembrance of me. Christ, there are three brief things that are sort of suggested by this. One, do this in remembrance of me. The disciples must've been thinking, wait, what, in remembrance of me, where are you going? He was intimating there that he wasn't going to stay bodily. I'm going to leave soon, but what did he say? Things they couldn't understand then. Don't worry, it'll actually be better for you because right now I'm with you shoulder to shoulder, but what, when I go, And I get there to the right hand of power and I sit on the throne with the Father, what am I going to do? I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ himself, not only can he be shoulder to shoulder with you now, he's in you. He knows you better than you know you. He made you. He knit you together perfectly in your mother's womb. There's an intimacy that we can't have with anyone else that we have in Christ um, so I'm leaving soon, but it's going to be good for you. I'm going to send my spirit and I'm going to build a body. I'm going to be able to be with all of you, which is why we can pray for the church, uh, in Nazareth or wherever it is, uh, in Syria and know that we are actually one body with them through what Christ has done. One, so I'm leaving soon. Also, you're going to tend to forget. That's what he's implying. Do this in remembrance. your natural tendency. What's that, um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Now, I love that line. I know some of us have an issue with some of it, and I think validly, perhaps, but that line, at least the first part of it, prone to wander, like, like an unmoored or unanchored ship that's just, it's going to drift, okay? Every morning, I tend to wake up. I say, this is an overstatement, but I feel like I kind of wake up half atheist. I have to be reminded every day, in time with the Lord, in his word, in prayer, in Christian community, in all sorts of ways, of the truths of the gospel. And we're in a broken place. We, have, we are still broken, though we're being remade in Christ. And we have to remind one another, as long as it is called today, and the table is part of this, of the truth of who we are and what we're called to as a family, what? Identified in Christ and on mission for Christ and his kingdom. Um, so we'll tend to forget. We'll tend to forget, remind, remember. And then finally, um, thirdly, recalling this constantly is the key to the new life. Uh, ironically, thinking on death, He says, don't stop thinking about this cross. Thinking about what he has done for us um, and how all of creation hangs together in his hanging on the cross. Constantly going back to that is something we should never get away from. And if you ever feel like someone's calling you away from that, like we've progressed, that's the ABCs, but let's go to the D-E-Fs and all the way to Z of the Christian life. You can't get past that. You can't graduate from the gospel. Jesus says, until I come again, never stop doing this. Okay. Thinking on death, ironically, gives us life. His death for me, so I could live. His life for me, his death in my place. Um, and then joyfully, what did he say? What did Paul say? As you do this, you what? Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So, what proclamation, that word? Um, why would we trumpet? Think about that's kind of the sense that Paul's giving here. Why would we trumpet? Inherald somebody dying on a cross. It seems bizarre. We've gotten so used to it that the bizarre nature of it kind of escapes us, but that's bizarre. But Paul's saying, let this be at the center of who you are as a people, because it's what makes you. Never forget, always do these things, sit under the preached word, speak to one another in hymns and songs and spiritual songs, take from the table, meet together regularly um, in such a way that you are keeping this at the center of who you are as a people, trumpeting the fact that, and with our neighbors, with our coworkers, Guys, someone, he happened to be God, went so low that he died on a Roman cross and went to hell in my place. And what that means is that I'm alive now. All my fears are gone. Yes, they creep back in, but literally, uh, logically, I have nothing left to fear. And friend, he invites everyone and anyone to come and to discover that life in him. That's That's what we trumpet. That's what we proclaim at the table. Um, And we remind each other of that. And what does Peter say in 1 Peter 2, 9? But you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Um, Until he comes again, lastly, is what Paul says. Do this, proclaim his death, what? Until he comes again. It's not always gonna be like this. This is not as good as it gets. He's coming again to finish what he started. Think of the cross, his first coming rather, and all that entailed, his life, his birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, as, his, as the start, the inauguration of his kingdom. When he comes again, it's going to be the completion. Okay, and then he's going to, all the things that we see in shadows, he's going to bring fully to bear. He's gonna do away with evil, do away with your capacity to sin, and you will see him face to face. And when that happens, you will be made like him. And we shall feast, friends. And this is a reminder of that and a promise that that's coming. This is not as good as it gets. If this is as good as it gets, we are of all people to be most pitied. But if that's true, that he is coming again, then why not lay it all out? Because we have all we need and it's all coming. We are, all we have to look forward to is a feast with our savior, our maker, our redeemer. And I've just had the privilege this week even of just seeing some of you sort of embody this like reaching out to those that have less and laying your rights down because you know that in Christ you have all things and just inviting someone into your life um, and erasing the distinction because you understand who you are in Christ and that makes me so happy and it encourages me so much and I see that happening in you and I just want to say keep it keep it going. Keep returning to the table. Keep returning to the gospel. Keep returning to the beauty of what Christ has done for you. Keep spurring one another on to love and good deeds. I'm being encouraged, man. Big time and convicted. Lord, may this be a beachhead into more conquest for you. Thank you. Um, I love you guys. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this word. It is a good, good word. Um, all your words are good and true. And we say amen to them. Um, we bless you for being the good word who calls us to, to yourself to find life in you because you are life. Um, we love you, we bless you. Have your way with us, purify your people, save. I pray that we'd be a dangerous people, that when our neighbors and our coworkers would be in big trouble, in big trouble, that you would make us increasingly a family on mission who are just proclaiming your excellencies, proclaiming your death until you come again, fixing our eyes on you, pouring ourselves out for one another, bringing others in that have less to know, to know you in Christ. Amen.